Tomorrow Unlocked brings you Fast Forward, presented by Ken Hollings. Program 6, The New Space Race. There is a future that we think we know already. One that seems as safe as yesterday. It lies somewhere between what we know and what we can imagine. Between the limits of today and the possibilities of tomorrow. But this future has a hidden dimension, a mysterious secret area that we like to call the past. Welcome to the last program in the current series of Fast Forward, and welcome to Outer Space. From the first Soviet cosmonauts and United States astronauts onwards, it feels as though I've always lived here. From the Moon and Mars to beyond the solar system, space has become our second home. Feels good to be here, doesn't it? The past decade or two has seen a renewed commitment to ideas that once seemed like the fantasies of long-range planners at NASA, America's National Aeronautics and Space Administration. A lunar space station, mining operations on the moon, and crewed missions to Mars are all back on the agenda. Jeff Bezos has stepped down as CEO of Amazon to concentrate on his Blue Origin spaceflight project, dedicated to a future where millions of people are living and working in space. Elon Musk's SpaceX program continues to gain momentum. Meanwhile, his Starlink project, putting thousands of satellites in low Earth orbit to create a global internet constellation, is in its beta stage. Old space was about national and ideological rivalries. New space is about investment and corporate expansion. So forget about the old space race. The new space race is here. Someone who's observed this shift from the old to the new at first hand is Chris Welch, professor in astronautics and space systems at the International Space University in Strasbourg, France, and president-elect of the British Interplanetary Society. One of the big things that's happened over the last decade is the amount of capital, the amount of investment into new space companies that has become available. It's become a respectable place to invest your money, partly because people have looked at it and have seen that the space sector has gone on growing, even despite the economic ups and downs. When I was starting my career, I could pretty much name all the space companies in Europe and America because there were so few. And these were the big space companies, part of what might have been called at one time the military-industrial complex. And they and the governments that they supported had this very close relationship. They both needed each other for their particular purposes. What's been transformational is, I think, the fact that technology has improved, and so it's possible to have more capability in a smaller satellite, at least in terms of electronics, which has made potentially building satellites cheaper. While at the same time, there's been significant progress in reducing the cost per kilogram to orbit. 
And now, here's a special out-of-this-world free offer. This moon rocket kit, both a toy and an exciting game. First, blast off. It separates in midair and lands two spacemen on a moon map. You get this wonderful game only through this free offer. When I was entering the space sector, when you built a satellite, it was effectively a very high technology craft item built in super facilities, built to be utterly reliable because once you put it into space, you couldn't do anything if it went wrong. And if you were going to spend all that money in sending it up there, you had to be absolutely sure it would function. And there was still a call for, for satellites like that. But what new space has done using typically smaller satellites and smaller spacecraft is to adopt a, a product-based approach where you build the best product you can and then you take that to market. Once you move to this idea where you can launch a new satellite every couple of years, it doesn't have to last a long time, and you launch a lot of them so that if some of them don't work, it doesn't matter, you completely shift the paradigm. You can take more risks because you've got redundancy built in. And also you can learn very quickly. I'll give you an example, the typical lifetime of a normal geostationary telecommunications satellite might be 15 years. So by the time that your satellite is reaching the end of its life, the technology on it is 15 years old. Other things have come along. Your competitors who've just launched a satellite may have much better technology. It also means that the people who did that were slower to adopt new technology because it had to last reliably for 15 years, so you don't want to be taking too many risks. If you're launching a satellite, you know it's only going to be up there for two years, come what may. You can cycle through technology, you can take more risk, you can develop faster, make money back more quickly. And that sort of approach has driven a very, very large increase in the number of companies launching satellites for all sorts of purposes. And at the same time, those satellite companies have been creating data, which then has to be used on the earth for the benefit of people down here. And so then there's a whole set of companies that also exist to do things with that data. So that's another sort of company. And now, because people have been building satellites in large numbers quickly, there's another set of companies who are coming along to provide the services to enable those companies to design and build and operate their satellites more easily than they have in the past. And so you can see the footprint spreads out. Companies servicing companies servicing other companies. Historical NASA planning documents drawn up in 1969 following the Apollo 11 moon landing projected that the organization would land a human being on Mars by 1982 and establish a lunar base by 1995. What they clearly weren't planning for 50 years ago was a massive expansion in business ventures orbiting our own planet. How will this new space race affect them? What are the rights and responsibilities of a company going into space? Tanya Maassen is based at the University of Leiden in the Netherlands, where she specialises in space law. 
The involvement of corporations is creating legal problems because the system of space law as we know it since about 50 years is based on states being the actors. It's states that are responsible, it's states that are liable, it's states that have to carry out their activities in a certain manner. And so with companies becoming involved and even uh, maybe becoming the main actors, that puts a stress on that system and that means that you have an evolution in the field of, for instance, establishing national legislations whereby states can make sure that their companies, their entities, do not frustrate the principles that they adhere to as a state that they signed up to by ratifying those treaties. So that's a whole new ballgame that is emerging. So when a private entity or, or even a private person, let's say, maybe in the future that will also be possible, launches and operates a satellite, it will in the first place need the authorization and the supervision of the state. So you would need to get a license, first of all, from your government. Should your satellite then crash into the ISS and cause damage or to a satellite of another a third state, then it is indeed the state that has launched the object that is liable. So it's not the private entity that is liable. You could call it archaic, but that is the way it was designed when there was discussion in the beginning, you know, should we allow private activity or not? There is more activity out in space than ever before. Some of it run by private companies, some by national agencies, and some of it the result of a collaborative partnership between the two. Whether on the private or state level, this much off-world traffic will also mean solving some intricate problems, particularly when it comes to security. In the shadow of Elon Musk's Starlink constellation of networked satellites, communication channels between the Earth and space can only become more complex and therefore more vulnerable as well. What are the challenges involved in keeping extraterrestrial connectivity safe and secure? Time to drift on over to the Safety Zone. The Safety Zone with David M., Principal Security Researcher at Kaspersky. Cyberspace, so to speak, has been exploited before space has, but space could easily be able to get involved with that. And I'm thinking here in terms of jamming GPS signals, for example, to try and affect missile guidance systems or hijacking satellite communications or cloud storage. We don't even need to go into space to look at some of these implications. If we look now at industrial facilities, more and more we've got connectivity in places where we didn't before, where we had purely mechanistic infrastructure, now it will be connected. Not least because perhaps somebody remotely needs to be able to connect to it in order to perform maintenance. Now that leaves us with the potential of an attacker being able to interrupt energy supplies or water supplies. So affect the critical infrastructure of a nation. If we're then talking about other planets and, and space exploration, then that makes us more vulnerable or the impact could be more catastrophic still. Whether it's terrestrial or whether it's in space, I think one of the crucial things that always needs to be analysed is what needs to be connected and what doesn't. And part of that involves doing a risk assessment. How easy would it be for somebody to attack it and what would the impact of that be? as a way of conditioning, you know, whether we connect it or not. So I think definitely in terms of, of putting machines onto the moon or machines onto Mars, the same 
risk assessment needs to be done, which is, is to say, actually, where we need connectivity maybe in order to manage those projects, maybe not every aspect of it needs to be connected, maybe not every aspect of it should be connected. Space junk is definitely something I think that seems to be a, a real problem because we've sent an awful lot of stuff up into space and it doesn't always come back down. And it's something that we seriously need to think about. In 2020, the UK Space Agency launched a £1 million fund for solutions to deal with space junk. And our own company, Kaspersky, actually have announced support for Start Rocket, which is a project related to retrieving space debris. And it's basically small autonomous satellites that catch the space junk and take it out of orbit using sticky polymer foam. And the idea is that it collects it and then on its way back through the atmosphere, it just burns up. Fast Forward is brought to you by Tomorrow Unlocked, the cyber culture channel from Kaspersky. Fast Forward, because the past won't wait. Following our machines, Let's slip out of low Earth orbit now and head further into space. Why are the Moon and Mars looking so attractive to us again? What is it about these two apparently dead worlds that makes them suddenly so appealing to the likes of Bezos and Musk? Is space only a billionaire's plaything? Or is going into space still a genuinely collective human venture? And what will it mean for business practices once they go off-world? Here's Tanya Masson again. So it's really exciting time with all the missions to Moon and Mars that are being planned by various countries 50 years after we first and last set foot there. And there is a promise of resources that could be extracted or somehow obtained and commercialized there. And that is creating a big buzz in the community, not only scientifically and technically, it's a huge challenge. It's also a promise for establishing permanent human presence on these bodies or for using the moon as a stepping stone to Mars. You would not have to bring all the water that you need from Earth, but you could use water on the Moon and then transform that into fuel and go to Mars. So the issue of whether those resources may be used and even commercialized is a legal question that is not very clearly addressed in the United Nations Space Treaties. And so that has, in recent years, maybe the last five years especially, created a lot of buzz. And should it be allowed to own these resources and to commercialize them? How do you make sure that it happens in a regulated manner? How do you make sure that it doesn't become some kind of gold rush? And that is the big challenge because the treaties have certain principles that the benefits have to be for all the countries and that there has to be some measure of sharing and that there has to be some kind of environmental protection and due regard for each other's activities and so on. So there are many conditions that will need to be somehow guaranteed. And how do we do that? And that's the big debate at the moment. Everybody is now so super dependent on space. Space is so strategic that we have to think about our children and grandchildren that they can also still continue to depend on it. 
The fundamental right to go into space exists not just at the level of individual nation-states or corporations, but for the species as well. It should include everyone on Earth, a place that seems to be getting smaller the further we go out into space. The involvement of companies like Axiom and SpaceX has massively accelerated the new space race. But companies are also made up of people. New space has the chance to be inclusive in ways that old space never really was. It should be open to everyone. Venita Marwaha-Madil is a space engineer and part of a team currently working on a new robot arm for the International Space Station. She is also founder of the online initiative Rocket Women. Rocket Women aims to empower young women to choose a career in STEM, science, technology, engineering and maths, so we can improve the current percentage of female science and engineering talent globally and ensure that the vital technological solutions that we create in the world today are both built by and represent society as a whole. I know that a lot of women during the Apollo program really fought for their education to study engineering and science as a profession. It's really important to have role models, really tangible and visible, to inspire the next generation. And that's something that the women of Apollo didn't have. They didn't have role models to really lead them and show them the path to follow to get into the space industry. So that's something that I'm definitely very passionate about. These objectives are to explore the moon, the planets, and the interplanetary environment of our solar system, to investigate the sun, and its relationship to Earth, the geophysical properties of the Earth, and the physical nature of the universe, to determine the biological effects of the space environment on Earth's life form. The spacesuits that we're using on the space station were designed in the 1970s. And I think 11 out of those 17 or 18 or so original design spacesuits are still being used. So that's one thing that hasn't changed from a technological perspective. So as the NASA Astronaut Corps has become more diverse, we need to design spacesuits that have anthropomorphically sufficient needs and provide that for everybody. So I think the new EMU that's being designed, so that's the name for the new spacesuit that NASA are designing to go back to the moon, will ensure that it will fit everybody in the NASA Astronaut Corps as well. So everybody from the smallest female to the largest male astronaut and space walker as well. So I think that's one thing that we have learned from and, and we will change. We're also looking to the future and seeing how the commercial industry will play a role in space exploration as well. An example of this is that NASA have partnered with a company called Axiom Space and also with SpaceX and they're going to transport a commander professionally trained by Axiom alongside three private astronauts to the International Space Station. So we have these commercial space agencies working hand in hand with both the commercial side and national space agencies to develop this endeavor and, and move space exploration forward into the next century. The technology of today is already helping us penetrate the silent darkness of space. Man himself has taken the first tiny step into this vast unknown. And we can only imagine what resources will soon be brought back to Earth by these early pioneers. We are seeing a ramping up of interest in lunar exploration, both in orbit around the moon, but also on the surface. 
There are a lot of terrestrial benefits that come from this. The fact that the generation that will watch the first woman and the next man land on the surface of the moon, we call them the Artemis generation after the Artemis moon program that NASA is developing as well. So Artemis is, in Greek mythology, the sister of Apollo. And so the Artemis generation are going to watch the next person to land on the moon and be inspired and to create amazing technology, but also just be inspired throughout their lifetimes as the Apollo generation were just watching that when they were younger as well. We need to go to Mars, I think, because it's inherent in us to explore. We started off discovering and exploring both the continents around us and, and also we've gone to the Marina Trench as well. We've gone to the, the deepest point of the ocean and we've gone to the peak of Mount Everest. So I think it's really exciting and I can't wait till the day till the, the first woman steps foot on the surface of the moon and just how inspirational that will be to young men and women around the world and just what we can inspire them to do in the future as well. In the end, the new space race is driven by the same energy as the old one. The further we go into space, the more exciting the future seems. Fast forward to other worlds and other planets. The only problem with the future is that sometimes it seems to take forever to get here, and then suddenly it rushes on ahead without you. That's why it's as important to learn from yesterday as it is to think about tomorrow. The future started a long time ago. Remember, it was only in 1960 that Yuri Gagarin made the first journey into space, barely orbiting the globe once before returning to the Earth again. By the end of the 60s, in the summer of 1969 to be precise, Apollo astronauts were walking on the surface of the Moon. It's not surprising, therefore, that the Apollo program is still used as a model for radical innovation and rapid change. A few decades may have passed since humans were last on the moon, but in that time we have learned a lot. Attitudes and perspectives have shifted greatly from where they were 50 years ago. We're entering new space now, and this time it looks as though we're here to stay. You have been listening to the last programme in the first series of Fast Forward. Production and sound design were by Simon James. Music by Simon James and Max de Wardener. Production coordination was by Curtis James. You also heard the voices of my special guests, Chris Welsh, Tanya Masson, Vinita Marwaha-Madil, and David M. Historical voices, courtesy of the Prelinger Archive. Original space audio recordings provided by the European Space Agency, NASA, and the University of Iowa. I am Ken Hollings, and I have been your presenter. This has been a Sounds Fancy production. Further episodes of Fast Forward are available on all podcast channels. Fast Forward is brought to you by Tomorrow Unlocked. For more information about this series and other thought-provoking stories of how technology is helping us to create a better future, visit tomorrowunlocked.com by Kaspersky. Cybersecurity to help bring on the future. Hello everybody, David here from Kaspersky. I hope you're enjoying the Fast Forward audio series. If you like listening to podcasts around technology and privacy, be sure to subscribe to the Transatlantic Cable. Just search for Kaspersky or Transatlantic Cable in your favourite podcast listening app.